0: You're now listening to the No GPS Podcast with host Mez and Aaron. Remember to share, like, subscribe, and follow. Got a show idea, complaint, interesting take, or just want to say what's up? You can reach us at nogpspodcast.gmail.com. Enjoy the show. Playing all around the world, and you know,
1: around the world, giving diamonds and pearls.
0: Hey, what's up? We're back again for episode 11, I believe. It might be 12. Mez, it's starting to get up there. I'm here with my co-host Mez. My name is Aaron and we're doing something a bit different today. Mez, would you like to introduce the podcast for us?
2: Yeah, sure. What's up? Uh, today we got a book. We're going to slowly read through and uh, try and cover over the next uh, two or three episodes. And... Um, the book is by uh, Daniel McNeil with whom I uh, used to be my instructor at university Uh, books called Thinking While Black translating the politics and popular culture of a rebel generation it just came out late last year Uh, it's uh, it's a book that uh, McNeil has been writing for quite a while and I was uh, privileged enough to be um, to, to read you know bits and pieces there as he was uh um you know releasing some of them over as articles here and there and uh, uh so to see the final product was pretty dope and uh he, if he is listening at some point <laughs> uh he did send me some stuff to to go over years ago when i was a little bit uh, away from from uh you know keeping up with uh, the latest uh readings i guess and writings so I didn't get back to it, but um, to see the final product come out is pretty dope. And um, you, Aaron, yourself um, would know that over the last 10 years or so, a lot of the uh, contents of this book we have discussed in our <laughs> own yeah. free time, right. uh, especially because the book covers uh, two prominent uh, writers, I, I would say, one maybe more than the other. But then again, it depends on their, their respective scenes. But um, it's about Paul Gilroy and Armand White. Armand White, me and you have spoken about for many, many years. Uh, Paul Gilroy, uh, not maybe that much, because I always fu- uh, had my issues with him.
0: <laughs> right.
2: Um. But yeah, it's to finally see a book come out that uh, has these two very, very different, I guess, generational cohorts, uh, bringing them into conversation and. Uh, thinking through a generation of you know what daniel McNeil calls uh, a rebel generation rebel generation was soul i guess um it's pretty interesting i mean we've um, we've me and you have spoken about how it's always uh cool to bring two things that have nothing to do with each other in, in into contact um because you know there's once you break things down and deconstruct like the language of things, all of a sudden things that didn't make, didn't seem so connected seem uh, to actually do have something uh, in common. So mm-hmm. uh, that's uh, what we're going to do today. We're going to cover the first couple of chapters and then uh, go from there.
0: Right, right, right. So we're, we're covering the intro and the first two chapters, I believe, of the book going up to page 30... Uh, 43, yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, so these, these are two thinkers... Who normally wouldn't be put together but I think that that's exactly the genius of Daniel McNeil in a sense kind of learning from both Armand and Gilroy who like to take things out of their context and show the the desperate connections but the connections nevertheless between those two thinkers though those two ideas those two products cultural products and so I, I thought that was pretty genius of Daniel McNeil to do that to bring these two thinkers uh, one from, of course, England, uh, Paul Gilroy, and then the other, Armin White from America. I was introduced to all of these thinkers, uh, including Daniel McNeil, uh, by you, and obviously we 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 delve deeper into Armin White than Gilroy, but reading some stuff over the years, um, uh, but not not that intensively, has been you know a very enriching experience. Just reading this book now and. And I think McNeil really has a handle on these two thinkers and what they mean to, you know, uh, the community of black intellectuals that both of these seemingly are as different as they are. They're both outsiders, they're both outliers, and they love to flout convention. And so they have that, as Daniel McNeil would say, a do it for yourself punk ethos so that, that those are the points of connectivity between them and they're great disruptors. So uh, I'm excited to read the book I'm excited to talk about this And for sure it seems like Very fitting for these times Because we're putting two thinkers together Who uh, from the um, Looking at it from the outset Would have great disagreements But that's all the more reason why You would put these two together To have a discussion And to show a level of democratic, Democratic sensibility And A level of political and cultural maturity and to get out of the echo chambers and to find new ideas uh, and new thoughts and there's those strands in those conversations that are sometimes hard to have and so uh, uh, another thing I want you to talk about this too mes is that I think Daniel McNeil understands Canada better than Canadians
2: yeah I was gonna add that (laughs) yeah
0: so we could get into that just the how the how Canadian media and academic institutions uh patronize uh, the general public the informed general public and so the kinds of conversations that are licensed to happen in public spheres or within the pages within editorial pages I thought that that was salient I feel like there is there is this issue of uh, dumbing things down or not thinking that the public itself has anything of merit to really contribute so there's no real call and response relationship it's just uh, you're handed down these edicts from uh the the the, the ivory towers and and the media institutions so i thought i thought that that was salient uh very searing and poignant the way that he put it so
2: yeah that was gonna that's gonna be my other point in the introduction is that it's uh, probably important to note that both listeners readers and uh the writer himself um, mcneil would probably appreciate that this podcast is an is a you know on either side of the atlantic one in canada uh one host in canada and the other in london talking about the dynamic of the black atlantic uh, itself so um that's probably uh, that's probably also relevant um the only other thing i would say as well is and daniel would teach us back in the day is close reading and i don't know if i still do that it's <laughs> been a long time but uh i uh, phrasing that he would always uh, bring up uh, is discordant affinities. And I think that's kind mm. of the, in a nutshell, what the, this book is kind of, um, you know, being read through is there's uh, affinities, but however discordant they might be, right? And right. Uh, that's kind of also the, the, the hopeful, hopefulness of um, cross cultural uh, discourse uh, that doesn't succumb to difference but uh, seeks to meet it, you know, reach out. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you want to jump into it? Yeah,
0: let's jump into it. Let's jump right. all the uh, way in. Mm.
2: So just generally as uh, as an introduction, when I first walked into uh, Daniel's class, it uh, was Media and Cultural Studies. This was, this was 2009. And first time I came across people like Paul Gilroy and Stuart Hall, and I was I was literally just I was less maybe a year into my you know uh, time living here in England mm-hmm. and all these people were really far away from me <laughs> you know like I couldn't understand uh, who they were what their context was also the context being in the, in you know independent critical study in, at the university level which was also new to me even though I went to university in you know, Asmara years before that was separate and my ideas of blackness were all imported even though i wasn't consciously i wasn't conscious of it um so the idea of uh of a of a dynamic kind of network of blackness uh uh, or meanings and signifiers of blackness that existed within the atlantic up and down I was i I wasn't ready for that idea so (laughs) i remember just not just me the whole class kind of thinking you know being introduced to paul gilroy and thinking uh why why this guy <laughs> you know <laughs> what, what would make this guy so special he seems pretty boring um now now you know fast forward i kind of understand a lot of the, uh, the the context a little bit more and um, um i made my own mind up of course about paul gilroy um, what i get out of him and what i can't what i know i can't get out of him i've met a lot of you know black british folks in these uh, intervening 15 years and uh, what they think of him, whether they knew of him or not. A lot of the history that Daniel goes over in the uh, in the black and British chapter that basically goes over um, Paul Gilroy's, you know, life from, you know, b- being born in, in the 50s and growing up in the Enoch Powell kind of years, um, the days of, you know, soul, punk and rock and roll. Uh, festivals the days of you know the first black football player to play for such and such professional team and um that whole kind of uh history i kind of got gotten to understand a little bit more from actual people you know speaking to them been there or who who um who had parents who, who went through the you know through those generations and um uh what i've always I, mean, I guess i can say about paul gilroy is he always struck me as someone who had nothing politically to say to me but whose uh, critiques um about culture about the meaning of uh, certain words certain terms at the individual level always made me have to take pause and then kind of rethink things um that's why my favorite part of this uh chapter is really the end part the part that um kind of singles um uh, that talks about the uh the days of him being kind of singled out as a heretic by different people mind you he obviously wrote t- to a you know to the left of people like raymond williams and ep thompson and uh cr- critiqued them in you know in familiar ways the way we do now and how the left the, the white left actually has a lot of Things in common with the very white right that it, you know, purports to be uh, resisting or battling against, whereas there were people to the left of Paul Gilroy, uh, whether Asian, Black, or just politically Black, who reminded him of his uh, shortcomings when uh, when he seemed to drift a little bit away from the people and fall i think a little bit too deep into his own uh what, what should i call it uh daydreams <laughs> yeah i want to start with this bit here on page 16 okay um yeah so he, he talks about how he as a teenager quickly kind of breaks up from uh, from his relationship his family's relationship with christianity And he would continue to relish, uh, quote unquote, ideal communicative communicative moments between performer and crowd, which he believed surpassed anything the structures of the family can provide. And when he started going out to experience live music in London in the late 60s and early 70s. So this is, um, almost uh, spoke about this before offline with you. Uh, This first generation of a certain kind of middle class of non-white folks, immigrants or otherwise, and I, and I think Danny McNeil is very careful when he writes immigrant or first or second generation immigrant. He's always quotations, or um, he doesn't just throw those terms out. But there's this first generation of a middle class that had time or uh, moments in their lives to actually enjoy things, to be around, to 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 take in things. You know what was uh, what was going on around them, um, as opposed to. Maybe previous generations, where um, this black middle class was always, um, you know, maybe held back a little bit from gaining that kind of leisure time. Um, so that's, I, I think, what haunts my relationship to Paul Gilroy for the rest of for the rest of the my time here, even because there seems to be someone who has his eyes in the in the clouds, even though he has a lot of pertinent things to say.
0: Yeah. I also do think that his approach is deliberately... It's smart in the sense that he understood you needed more than just the dialectics of like analyzing material reality. You needed more than that analysis, that dialectical analysis to reach and touch the working class or the lower lower middle uh, class, right, and so that's why he taps into the rich cultural productions of the Black Atlantic, right? I think that they say, I think, I think it's said in the book that you know the great, the two great inventions, artistic inventions, cultural inventions of the twentieth century is film, of which Armand White is a film critic, and black music, of which both Gilroy and Armand White are are very, very, very much involved in critique and um, just being inconsensed in that world. So I, I understand why it's they're competing right with the right so how do how do we win the hearts and minds and I think what they find out later or the as McNeil shows, the issue with the Gilroy's uh, approach coming from the the staunch Marxists is that, you know, people are not really jumping on our side. They, 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 are they, both for the National Front, you know, a racist right-wing organization, and with us, uh, you know, socialists and Marxists on this side. So this is this has no real material or real uh, symbolic weight. And so, yeah, obviously that—that that was the critique level that Gilroy by so many people. I mean, he had issues with—he was a man on an island by himself, right? It's the Afrocentrics were coming after him on his analysis of race and his critique on you know these these black revivalist sensibilities coming from you know the nation of islam from the, from the rastafari movement and so he you know he was in battle against them because he was very outspoken and then the marxists are coming at him and then of course the right wing right so he he's kind of like armand in the sense that they don't really have any friends uh, and they have been they they are they are outsiders in the black public intellectual realm, uh, which is—which is fascinatingly interesting. I think also too for Gilroy, what's an interesting point of difference between him and Armin White is that Armin, of course, believes that you know black consciousness involves God and the family, and of course, Gilroy is—is—is—is is, is, is not religious. He's not Christian, as Armin White is, and. He believes that freedom or liberation can only happen in the public sphere. So that's where this kind of difference is. But I can understand this all these this rich cultural production coming out in the 60s and 70s when, you know, Gilroy started to go out to concerts, go out to different events. He goes to see Bob Marley. He goes to see Curtis Mayfield. And, you know, that song Darker Than Blue really becomes an anthem for him uh, and an appeal to humanism, right? Right. And I think that's also the connection between Armand and Gilroy, right? Uh, you could talk about this probably in uh, in more depth and detail, Mez, but they, they both see themselves as humanists, and that, that's what kind of makes them kind of old, old symbols of, of how we... It's almost kind of naive to a lot of people now who are really disaffected with all that stuff and disenchanted with all of that humanist talk. And, of course, we've had different interventions theoretical interventions in the last 10 to 20 years that have really questioned humanism and thrown it to the wayside so both of these these guys as he point out in the book can be interpreted by a lot of people as being you know these old cranks who uh you know are car- carmudgeon so yeah like mes they, they hold on to this humanist idea and for even for gilroy he's kind of he's went past even the idea of the black atlantic as an identifier He views like humanism through a planetary type of humanism and it's, it's kind of global implications. Whereas Armand is on the other side, right? He's, 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 he's as American as, as apple pie. (laughs) I mean, the
2: reason they, they're embattled is because they, they they took a step in white institutions and they're outsiders inside. And therefore they're, and they're also outsiders of, of what they left behind, I guess, quote unquote, <laughs>
0: right, right? Right, right. Um,
2: so you know, it's, it's the classic kind of oh, I don't know, um, you know, like in search for a sense of belonging type of situation. Mm. But what they also what that means then their writing then becomes uh, it lives at joint at, at the pivot point or at the joint or what they call decollage or whatever, you know, at the, the point of articulation. So they bring two things together that don't necessarily. You, you you know someone who who knows where they are wouldn't necessarily see or seek out that's where they're where they live where their writing lives um and what they also both have in common is um uh, that word common they're, they're searching for some kind of common ground right whatever that that might be so they always resisted this was in Stuart hall's work this is in paul gilroy's work they resisted any kind of uh factionalism especially based on stuff something that at that in that generation at that point was seen f- strictly through some kind of scientific or biological interpretation of race uh mm-hmm. that, which they deemed uh, spurious and therefore they resisted right especially i mean especially gilroy and um you know uh and the, and the kind of black british left at the time the mm-hmm. um institute in birmingham for cultural studies um actually sought to completely redefine blackness as a term and a signifier to politicize it in order to you know maybe have it uh, cover more than it uh, what it used to cover under racial and racist terms right uh, and then they both end up in in their own respect with you know armin white on one side paul Gilroy on the other Obviously, we're mentioning Armin White a lot here. We haven't really touched on him in the in this part of this section of the book, but they mm-hmm. both end up um, espousing a kind of humanism um, to each their own. Um, so, yeah, that's, I guess, to really put a pin on it. This is kind of what everything about what, I, what you and I just said points to the um, argument for why you should read these two together. Odd bedfellows, yes, but... Um, a lot can be uh, taken, you know. A lot of a lot can be learned from engagement.
0: Hundred percent, hundred percent, hundred percent. Also, what's interesting to get back to another point is um, that I was uh, talking about earlier is that there's this hip hop ethos, and they probably wouldn't characterize it as that. But would you take something and and put it, or or center it, or place it outside of its context, right? That's in, in essence, what a sampler does, right, what a good hip-hop producer, a sampler would do, right, the the, the, the bomb squads out there, right, the ones who uh, produced uh, most of Public Enemy's earlier work, produced Ice Cube's first solo album, uh, great samplers, stuff that you can't do now because of you know, the legal ramifications, but a good sampler will take something out of its context, reintroduce it, and then give it a new meaning. And so what Gilroy and Armand aim to do, and this is according to uh, McNeil, I'll just kind of like read something real quick, is because they seen black music as the most important popular art forms of the 20th century, they sought to rescue the energy of Motown, the Village Voice and John Luke uh, Goddard from the galleries, the advertising agencies and the record companies and use them again to change reality right almost like a a guerrilla warfighter would do is take something out of its context or take something that's being used and then mechanize it in a different way against the institution or the body that is aiming their their ammo at you to speak metaphorically right so i think that that's what's fascinating about them is they tap into the ethos of you know the late 20th century with the advent of all of the the innovations in telecommunications And information technology, all of a sudden, all of these desperate Black communities around the world can connect and talk with each other and share with each other. And I think that that's one of the things that Gilroy does that is so important, I think, with the Black Atlantic, is to put all of those people into conversation with each other, take them out of their isolation. And I think that historically that makes sense because he says it here. I forget where he says it. might be saying it in the beginning. Oh get the it was his critique of i believe raymond williams is that like wh- why didn't you get western and non-western voices why didn't you analyze them together why did you theorize with them because imperialism connects all of them so when you're looking at the black atlantic it's that experience of being within the english empire that connects everybody whether you're in america whether you're in canada whether you're in england whether you were you were in the caribbean angle-speaking uh, nation-states, right? There's there's this, this line that connects all of us, and we should be in conversation with each other to have a more clear-eyed view of the reality at hand and what we need to do to, to change it and to bring more freedom, more liberation into the fold for our, our minority communities, our communities facing such brutal conditions. So I... I, I I do think that that was a, a much needed in, intervention on, on behalf of Gilroy. And I think that those are the, the two things that both him and, and Armand are connected by. They, they hate provincial provincialism, uh, parochialism, and they want to expand and, and open the borders of thought so that we can be in contact and communication with each other and to allow the genius to spill through or... Over the borders and the lines that nation states draw for themselves.
2: Yeah, although um, on hip hop, uh, he uh, he's not my go-to either. (laughs) There's a point in uh, page thirty-five where he says something that you know, you know, I'm I'm tired at this point. I've said this like over and over for for all my life, where you know, hip hop is the only kind of music, only genre of music that gets uh, this distinction. This this division between lyrics and beats hammered into its very uh, core and so so it gets judged unfairly i think by that division more than any other kind of music so on 30 on page 35 he talks about he also expressed concern that the wit and dexterity of lyricists could be drowned out by computerized synthesized and programmed drum technology so you know I think right. I believe he's even talking about the message here at this point. I think it's the first <laughs> time he heard the message, and this right. was this has always been my problem with it: is rap can only be about the message, you know? Right. It's the only music. I mean, obviously they are coming from a a generation of you know punk rebellion, I guess. There's uh but even then they were I feel like white rock and roll spaces were more it. Allowed to uh, be creative, not political, yeah, to be be creative and to try new things, to express new different things. It it was moving in and out, whereas, uh, black music was constantly told, Stay on message, stay on message. So that I think it even screwed us up for for a little while.
0: That's a theoretical drive, that's a theoretical drive, right? To make when you make an art, an art form only significant when it's political you close any other possibilities of creative creativity or innovation or new ideas to be sparked you encircle it and in that enclosure there's a certain type of death that happens so you're absolutely right it gets a raw deal it doesn't get read the way that it should be and it's not treated in a generous way
2: yeah that, I- but that, that, so that's one of, you know one of the things i'm like i, I can't I can't even speak yeah. or think about hip-hop with uh, with Paul Gilroy because for, to him it's the only reason it can be taken seriously is if it's serious. And right. It, it screwed us up. I was going to say it screwed us up as millennials, I guess, who fell into that trap as well because uh, the only reason the golden age of hip-hop is good is because it was political when that's actually not true. It was wow. the golden age because it, it had everything. You know. Wow. It was all of it. It was was political and not political. And, you know, the uh, the irony was not just political irony, Paul. It was also just ironic.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, think about it. A concert in 1989 or 1990 would feature Public Enemy, Kid and Play, and WA, and maybe even... What, De La? And, and maybe even De La Soul in there, right? You, you, you mix it up, you mash it up. And that kind of diversity that was there from the outset was so rich, you could get something spiritual and bohemian from De La Sobe. You could get something very political and, you know, politically charged by public enemy. You could get something fun from Kid and Play, right? Like, it's like when you dismiss that richness, things become dead, right? Because that kind of seriousness is what the record companies took. And they wrapped everything or they dismissed everything that wasn't gangster rap and just made gangster rap the main thing. So you create a a homogeneous zone. And I think those are the things that people like Paul Gilroy are always fighting against when you give things one narrative. So then why would you do that to hip hop, right? That's kind of like you're pointing at them for being generic, but you're doing the same thing with your analysis of it. I think that Armin is a bit better on hip hop than obviously no wait i mean that that book resistance uh, Hmm. that's that changed my life right his reading of public enemy his reading of michael jackson his analysis of prince his his breakdown on the spielberg films like that right there his work in the mid to late 80s and early to mid
2: 90s yeah i was gonna say it's that time period where he i think he was a little bit more alive to young people um than maybe paul gilroy was but then it, it's uh depends i guess when and where um I, today definitely in the last 10 years uh Armand white uh, i don't think it would make sense to say he's been alive to young people
0: <laughs> yeah that, that, that's that's an interesting point you make because of course while i was reading this book something funny comes up where uh i find you mez i find you and uh i th- i didn't think i was gonna find you but that's so interesting so so daniel mcneil and and uh, Armand White and Mez did a podcast back in like two thousand fourteen, two thousand thirteen. I forgot the year, but you're cited in there, and, and <laughs> something interesting happens in that talk between you guys. Would you like to 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 speak about that, Mez?
2: Oh, Armand White. Uh, I thought we'd get I thought we'd get into Armand White stuff during the Armand White chapter, but no, no yeah, that right, was twenty sixteen right. pod, um, where he mentions that. Uh, part about decoloniality that imperialism isn't all too bad if we think about it in a different way you know what's that star wars line from a yeah. certain point of view
0: <laughs> right 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 so yeah but i feel like that's a good disagreement to have with somebody albeit something that really like floored all of us i remember listening to that and saying yo what are you saying Armand?" but at the same time it's those people that we need to be in conversation with more than ever I think like we detailed before with the loss of the like back in the day the FCC would would make you if you had an extreme opinion about something you would have to have somebody with the opposite opinion on your show whether it's a radio show uh, a tv show or what have you so you would be watching shows like Geraldo or whatever and you, you'd have like David Duke up there and then like Minister Farrakhan up there And they'd be talking to each other So they had to be These are people with Great 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 disagreements And different ways of seeing the world But they had to be in conversation With each other right I think this was called uh, Not the Honesty Act But it's, it's evading me But we talked about it In our episode on music On hip hop So that that <laughs> We have to have those kind of conversations and I, And I love the way that You and Daniel handled that situation And
2: I don't still. even remember.
0: <laughs> I mean, you, you still kept the conversation going. You didn't, you uh, know, obviously you questioned it. You said, "Hey, what do you mean by this?" And you go,
2: uh, I, I, yeah, I mean, I I kind of understand where he's coming from. I mean, I think that was I've I've told you that Armand White to me is someone who should be read against whoever, whatever administration is in the White House. Mm. So there, I think he should be really divided into an um, a Reagan uh, era a Clinton era, yeah. a, a George W. Bush era. And then the Obama, Obama. and Trump era should be read together because I think he's, we'll talk about this later in the in the Armand White yeah. stuff, but he he suffered from his, he was one of the people who suffered from this whiplash effect from mm-hmm. Obama to Trump that I don't think um, he's re- recovered from. I wonder what McNeil will make of uh, the latter-day Armand White. But, um, to get back to Paul Gilroy though yeah the, um, the last part of the chapter is uh, titled denounced as a heretic right right so when he I think this is when the split happens between a certain middle black middle class of intellectuals
0: mm-hmm.
2: and a black I say I guess you could call it, community of protesters uh, you, know, you know people who have you know protest culture And uh, part, you know, who who can trace their time in Britain and protesting and being politically active since the Windrush generation, um, who, regardless of what Paul Gilroy or Stuart Hall were up to, were already in conversation and in communication with black, you know, the entire black diaspora under the heading of Pan-Africanism, for example, or Garveyism, Afrocentrism, Negritude um with people you know across the americas and and in africa and as well uh as well and um it's in the 80s when i think i feel once uh these uh groups start to emerge or these organizations like the uh what is it the institute for race relations i believe the irr and i forget what the other one was but um there's there's all of a sudden these organizations that are either government facing state facing or community and street facing and if you're a former um attracted a certain ambitious middle class that was you know gaining numbers and always wanting funds and out of that you know comes careerism and individualism and so on so so forth i believe at a certain point in mcneil's book it's uh It's defined as, um, you know, ideological incorporation, right? As opposed to um, staying off the grid, staying pure and staying authentic and with the the public's uh, kind of day-to-day needs in mind. And um, Paul Gilroy runs right into that, right? Um, He speaks about all the local folks, all the people on the ground all the time. But I think the people I've spoken to, he doesn't. They don't know who he is, you know. I mean, (laughs) I've I've lived in London. I've been to Hackney. I've been to Brixton. I've been east, west, north, and south. I've spoken to people who grew up in Birmingham, um, so on and so forth. And most of the people who do know of him and find him, you know, useful, are people who were outside of the African, Afro-Caribbean community, Mm -hmm. who have felt that like they were, and who. who pine for the days of political blackness when people were a little bit more connected and they, they see Paul, Paul Gilroy as someone who brought that, who, who worked hard for that. Right. Um, whereas on the other side, Paul Gilroy is really uh, either people don't know him or think of him as one of the earliest uh, kind of generations of sellouts. Um, That's necessary that he's ideologically incorporated, but he doesn't speak to issues um or even take part i guess in in, in in this section of the book the critique by colin prescott and by a. is really what kind of in a nutshell um is what i heard in the last 10-15 years right in my mm-hmm. time here speaking to people is um that um you know, he argued, uh, this is Colin Prescott, he argued that Gilroy appropriated the political struggles of others for theorizing that was too enamored with the self-consciously difficult language of the new sociology. Uh, and he did, claimed that there was something very European about a book that did not explicitly recognize non-European thinkers, such as Mao and Amical Cabral. Now, you <laughs> juxtaposes to the, his critique of uh, Raymond Williams in them, for not, you know, looking at having a wider right. scope of things. That's you know, ironic. British Empire. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a kind of internationalism that is not non-international. Or at right. least specifically international. And McNeil and, points that out,
0: right? That, that contradiction.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and my whole beef, <laughs> in a bigger sense, post-university was that there hasn't been a reckoning for why the uh, model has moved from Pan-Africanism to diaspora. Which mm. to me has always been a borrowed term, right. reworked, re refitted, or fit sorry sorry uh, you know the uh, African, Afro Caribbean, African derived you know diaspora. So right. it's it's um, and this is where it becomes really fishy for me is because it is a fact that it's a diaspora, right? You mm-hmm. can you can use the term to to call the uh, to, or to name the the the, the subject um diaspora you can do that but to think politics through diaspora i think to me has uh, kind of been a death knell to a lot of fruitful p- political internationalist kind of um oriented mm-hmm. um, movements and that's something that i i mourn you know i think in this book there is uh, going to be some talk about mourning mm-hmm. uh, i mourn that um one year after Prescott's review, he continues, Sivananda and crystallized such disjunct- disjunctures between the CCCS, S, uh, that's the Cultural Studies uh, Institute in Birmingham, which is kind of the launching pad for all of this black British um, intellectual work. And the IRR, uh, the Institute of Race Relations, by accusing the New Times project of Stuart Hall and Martin Jack of retreating from black working class struggles against racism and neocolonialism into culturalism discourse analysis deconstruction and (laughs) this is dope thatcherism and drag (laughs) i mean i I think that's just you know below the belt for the 80s i guess you could imagine you're black in the 80s and someone calls you your thatcherist and drag that's um i think that's more insulting but but the other parts about culturalism discourse analysis deconstruction it's it's masturbatory it's uh it it is it goes back to what i thought before is that paul gilroy um i'll say this one thing and i'll move on I'm being harsh on the man but um he once paul gilroy once said a long time ago you know his staying on uh, the labor party some of the politicians of the labor party here uh staying on their jack basically cr- criticizing them and keeping them on their toes he would say things like he said what he once said um you know, these labor, these politicians, they move up and down the country in black limousines and they see the world through these tinted windows. And he said that at some point we might we might have to think that that's how they see the, the world. You know, you start to think that the world is that the real world is actually um, is like that, is that is, is seen through as is, as is seen through that perspective. And I feel Paul Gilroy sees the world as he saw it through his window from his bedroom. As a kid, you yeah. know uh, possibilities, potentialities. Things were happening on the street, but o- they were always outside. And as soon as he was old enough to go outside, he went and and enjoyed it, and, mm-hmm. and sought pleasure in it. And he never. It's. I think you said it earlier. I don't know if it was off record, um, off, off, uh, offline, or now. Having your cake and eat it. Having your cake and eat it. <laughs> you know. Right. Yeah. So it's uh, wanting to make to mix pleasure and politics is always i think you know it's a non-starter but it definitely started with a certain generation and i think until was till this day we're in it just um exacerbated with new tech and uh daniel always talked about the digital age he i think um, always makes a marker about that time period yeah and, and i think it just got exacerbated because everybody's doing culturalism and discourse analysis and uh and people can curate their audiences even more now um, so th- so that inward movement towards the individual yeah. and his uh, kind of intellectual uh, delectation you know the, mm-hmm. there's a delectability a titillation that comes from intellectual <laughs> pursuit right. that people f- fall into and think that they're doing something meaningful uh, okay. like I always, con- I always joke like everybody's got a podcast now <laughs> so that's exactly what we're doing now and I think owning yeah. that is a little bit as the next is I think what this generation has on the former one that they understand what they're doing isn't really uh because uh, the 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 bits in the book the, I, mean, I love the the way he covers all of it uh daniel does the stuff that he, where he starts to write for emergency and temporary hoarding and all those mag- radical magazines at the time doing journalism and mixing all that up and uh you know that that time uh, how people were politically informed at the same time as they were, politi- um, you know, edit- politically entertained. I'm sorry, uh, culturally entertained. Mm-hmm. All that stuff is dope, but I think it led to a kind of oversaturation of that way of doing things. To now, where technology has made it so that we can all do that, but right. we're not anywhere closer to uh, to the things that uh, got us started in the first place, which is Enoch Powell's. Uh, the Enoch Powell's of the world are still around. Right, right, and right, right. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll stop there I'll, I'll tell you another thing that I don't like about Paul <laughs> okay okay
0: <laughs> so I, I think it's interesting because like to just kind of continue what you were saying earlier like the English public or Londoners or what have you um, obviously McNeil really he situates himself from where he's from uh, in the book you clearly understand he's from the north of England He's
2: from Liverpool, who are playing right
0: now, actually. Oh, okay. Shout out to them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, shout out to them. He's from
2: Merseyside, actually. I don't don't know if he's from Liverpool, Liverpool, but
0: okay. But I guess that's the that's the major city up there. So yeah, he he situates it. You know, he situates himself. He, He talks about the the different types of politics of you know Southeast England, London, more conservative, and then he talks about the North and how they were. Uh, the narrative, right, as 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 hooligans and so on and so forth, uh, the stuff being espoused by the English media back then, especially the, the tabloids. So so that's interesting in a sense because Paul Gilroy was like recently awarded the Holberg Prize, I think, in, in 2019. And so what's interesting to me is he's awarded because he's, in a sense, being recognized as one of the preeminent scholars coming out of the UK uh, on race, so to be awarded like that, for somebody who's been a maverick, somebody who's been an outlier, an outsider, feeling like they've been, in a sense, blacklisted, to, to be given those awards now is interesting insofar as I think that Gilroy, as, as well as Stuart Hall and, and the rest of them, they were doing stuff back in the day that was getting them criticized, right? Right? But I think Mm. I think they were tapping into something that was ingenious in the sense that the working class was disappearing. And so how do you talk to these people who are now being seen as human capital, as capitalists and waiting? How do you talk to them about the things that they're hoarding, the things that they're buying, the things that they're consuming? And it's where we are in the world right now. So I think that they they had their hand on the pulse and they understood where global capital was going in a certain extent. But I also appreciate Gilroy and Armand for, you know, being countercultural and really being critical of, as, as Daniel McNeil would say, middle-class black race hustlers and eggheads who exploited the hard-won victories of the civil rights movement for personal awards, tenure, and prestige. So they both rail against that, and those people who come in just kind of cheaply, Pick up a paycheck and pay lip service and that's all they do, right? They they're they're included in their struggle or their voice or their the narratives that they've been espousing have been co-opted. So these guys they they, they, they they're they're militant in the sense that they're they're railing against that and I can appreciate that. Right? So in, in the face of all of that, then to get the Holberg, Holberg Prize, to kind of do the hermeneutical, hermeneutical circle and go back to where I started it, uh, talking from at the beginning of this, this point I was trying to make, is, is kind of ironic right? to then get the Holberg Prize, which is basically seen as like the Nobel Prize for academics. I think it's a prize bestowed upon by the Norwegian Parliament. So it, 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 it it's it's interesting. Like, what, what do you think about that, man? Like they they have this uh, radical critique of the the Stanley Crouches and the, the Cornell West and all of them.
2: Well, Armand White does. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether Paul Geroy does. Uh, he probably does. I don't know. I mean, uh, I mean, Crouches. This, like this is more of an Armand White jazz. corner again, rather than. Gilroy, but, like, but yeah, Paul definitely had a, a time where he, he was going at those guys.
0: Yeah, yeah, they were part of the Village Voice. Like, yeah. and I only bring that up because like the way that Daniel's writing is quite ingenious that he's putting these two, these two thinkers together and their own, their own positionalities on things. Right. So if they're both against the grain, they're both outliers. They're both mavericks. They, they they have a set of <laughs> people that they're 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 railing against, right? And I remember reading. Uh, I think we were talking about this earlier, and this kind of uh, came to came as quite a surprise to you, <laughs> man. I was like, hey, you know, uh, Paul Gilroy and uh, Lewis Gordon, uh, who you, you you introduced me to back in the day, they they, they had a conversation together <laughs> about. I think it was on Lewis's most recent book on Black consciousness. And those are two thinkers that we never thought we would see talk to each other. I remember, like Lewis had quite a a strong critique on Gilroy, the Black Atlantic. And it's either bad, be bad, bad faith and anti-racism, either that text or another one. But I believe it was bad faith, anti-black racism. And so to see those thinkers come together, I
2: don't think it, w- it wasn't in a book. I think he was no, it was in a talk
0: where. I mean,
2: the, the reason I don't think they go together is because they have a completely different starting point. Gilroy starts in the 15th century and Gilroy is part of his British cohort um, that sees everything as, as, as starting in the 19th century with uh, race race science and eugenics and and uh, you know um, colonies in Asia and Africa. Mm-hmm. So, they they just have completely different la- launching pads, um, so they end up with different politics. Um, that that's, that's con- connected to what I was gonna say also about Gilroy's supposed a- uh, you know anti-parochialism. He's trying to he is about breaking down borders and you know seeking a humanism that goes beyond. But he always finds racism lodged within nationalism so he can't um he, uh, for, for me i don't know i've never I, I, I don't understand why he thinks of race and nationalism as kind of um kind of embri- embryonically linked you know um the rise of racism with him is always a kind of white nationalism
0: is it his experience as a, as a, as a young person in england could be. Going up against people who are talking about keep England English.
2: Or yeah, that's British. the European immigrant uh, immigrants in Europe's um, relationship to racism and the, to their own racialization has been through xenophobia and outsiderness and uh, um, y- you can't be German. I mean, I speak for my com- uh, my history. You can't be German because of your skin color. Right. Um, so German and white becomes a thing. Um, I think in America there is uh, an understanding of the history of how whiteness and Americanness comes to comes to comes to be, right? Mm-hmm. So there's uh, more of a there's a different conversation happening, but here is always dismissed as some relic of the nationalism. So if you would just get rid of nationalism, you can get rid of racism. So well, at least that's how I always understood it. And uh, uh, yeah, the the other part I was gonna continue on from before is. Because of black British cultural studies, I guess, there is this emphasis on diversity. And uh, there's a chapter in a reader by, I think, Les Back, who is a sociology professor at Goldsmiths, who um, comes out of, you know, British kind of sociology of that era as well. There's a chapter called The Fact of Hybridity. Mm. And that's one of the most offensive moments of my life, reading something. I remember at the time, I mean, now I'm over it, but um, it's obviously a play on Fanon's chapter, The Fact of Blackness. so It's it's, uh, it's almost kind of someone critiquing your truth Mm -hmm. with a a different kind of truth. Right. But one that offers him a way out, but keeps Mm -hmm. the first speaker trapped, right? So Fanon's point about the fact that blackness kind of remains lodged somewhere. Whereas Les Back, who's a white guy, mm-hmm. can, can celebrate hybridity, right? And the dynamism of culture and its irreducibility and its uh, mutability and all this stuff. And to, mm-hmm. um, I, I just feel that it enabled that kind of thinking um, all in the hopes of Taking you know strides towards the kind of humanism, right? <laughs> Which, uh, right,
0: right, right. Uh, I don't know. I mean, but that's interesting because it's the the critique of of multicultural snake oilsmen, right? That critique of, of multiculturalism that's coming out of Canada, that's coming out of England, that's coming out of America.
2: Oh, Gilroy like, is good on that. I mean, neoliberal right. multiculturalism. He's very good on that. Right, he's right, Actually, right. very good.
0: Um, you know, you should, you should read him for that. The, but that's the interesting part, right, is to, to, to lose yourself in that, but you can only experience, experience that type of multiculturalism or hybridity in these metropoles, right, in the, the Londons, the Torontos, the New York Cities, the, the, the Los Angeles, the Colognes, the Stuttgart's, right, the Milan's, but that's not where all of the world's populations are situated from, so I think in a sense that, to, to say that this, this has global ramifications and if this is the political analysis or cultural analysis that should be taken up upon by by the diaspora that might not be in those types of places because when we talk about diaspora we're not thinking about we're not thinking about a village in in rural ghana we're not <laughs> we're thinking about toronto we're talking think about <laughs> london we're thinking about those types of places it's, it's so like good. a video game
2: right like if you any of those cities you have more coins or <clears throat> you know like more yeah. points
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> like nationalism is all that as a, as as a unifying tool that 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 person in rural Ghana or rural Sierra Leone can have at that moment at that point they don't understand hybridity or being in a well, very cosmopolitan place
2: you see it in uh, critical uh, like well in Discourse around race mixture, mm-hmm. multiracial versus you know merely monoracial, and um, Toronto being multicultural versus um, what like Sierra, like you say Sierra Leone may, may maybe not being so multicultural, or if it is multicultural, it's more in ethnicities, right? All of a sudden, yeah. we move towards anthropology to when we refer to the diversity. In, you know in the global south or something-
0: mm-hmm.
2: whereas here we are our multiculturalism is more cult, more multicultural mm-hmm. because we've been i don't know i guess we're more uh you know m- better educated about each other and and uh <clears throat> have access to information i guess so right there is there's is that um elitism in that sense as well, but you mm-hmm. said um Paul Gilroy recently said something where he may have distanced himself from the Black Atlantic.
0: Yeah. I, I, it's, I think he's great for complicating ideas, which is beautiful because that opens up the discussion for more thinking and more dialogue, which is, I think, something that a practice that he's committed to, which I respect. Uh, but, I, but I think that especially places like London that used to be their own black diaspora used to be more so consisting of people from the anglo-speaking caribbean world right now there's a lot more black immigrants from places like nigeria ghana sierra leone east africa somalia and so the idea of Of a Black Atlantic now is complicated by the inclusion of those subjects who were also a lot of them
2: not so Atlantic,
0: not so Atlantic, (laughs) but part of the big British Empire, right? So you might not call it the Black Atlantic, but you could call it something else. And I think for him, where he sees like all of this fantastic cultural production coming from, he's saying it's not just Black people are not just doing it in the Atlantic. We have to have something that's a bit more planetary, a bit more expansive, and so I don't quite know what that means yet. Yeah, but yeah.
2: that—that's what happens when you stick to British Empire, which is—I mm. mean, by your own admission, that's very parochial. The empire was a white supremacist empire that spans several centuries and had different nationalities, I guess, whatever at its uh, at different points, you know, uh, right. b- being more in the you know c- central to it, so. <clears throat> if we were to drop the British part and the English-speaking part, I remember years years ago, <laughs> this was a white Brazilian woman uh, dismissing Paul Geroy's entire scholarship merely because it didn't apply to the Portuguese, to the Lusophone, you know, world that she came from. Now, at the time, I remember we we resisted that. You know, we went against it because this is how they kind of create this uh you know prophylactic around the entire country of brazil where things are not as they as they are everywhere else you know it's like some something weird about english-speaking world where racism exists or uh, you know anti-blackness or white supremacy somehow you know brazil is uh um immune to that but she did have a point there is a kind of you know anglo-centered um you know bent to what paul gilroy's uh black atlantic was and since the black atlantic there's been people who talked about a black pacific and more recently black mediterranean i've uh i think we started writing this uh a while back i don't know if it was on that thing on uh, I don't know where it was, but I, I, I know I wrote it down more so than I spoke about it on the on podcast that this historical relationship that blackness has been brought into with the oceanic or, you know, bodies of water. Or maybe we talked about it during the, the Wakanda Forever uh, review that right. we did.
0: Right, right, right. right so,
2: so somehow we want to, we, we, we're drawn to these different bodies of water.
0: That's so interesting, because that's where Gil- Gilroy is at right now. He still sees it as that, as oceanic. As
2: well, because of the metaphor of the oceanic. I think I think that's, I think that comes all the way from from Freud. But uh, let's not do that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But but also historically because of the transatlantic slave trade, and now, the Mediterranean becoming like this, uh, you know, new, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, location of catastrophe with majority black immigrants being at the you know being the victims of it so
0: yeah
2: and um, yeah I mean I guess if he's changing his mind about this stuff it's still speaking in circles I think because it's A. stuck in the, in the 19th century and B. stuck within a um, an actually uh, with an understanding of race that is nationally bound and that nation just happens to be Britain, which had a big empire, which allowed him to, you know, critique the the, the Raymond Williamses of the world. But um, he never allowed to extend these conversations to, like uh, Prescott says, to the Amical um, Cabral and Mao. Oh my goodness. I, right, right, by the right. way, I just watched the Marvel movie where they champion socialism.
0: So, <laughs> right, okay. Uh, I, I mean, that's, that's...
2: Gilroy is a socialist too, I bet. <laughs> Maybe not Mao's. Maybe Mao is a little bit too too far from the next Captain America is going to be a socialist.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so, but, so, what's interesting too about that is that um point that you are making about the the non inclusion of you know of Mao of Cabral. I, I, to to defend Gilroy, I think that he's not including figures like that because he sees them as staunch nationalists, something that he does not um. He does not promote. He,
2: he, I mean, I was gonna say in the '80s the split also happens because he insulted the Garveyites, the, the Afrocentrics. Right, All right. these black bookstores that he, you know, champions. I guess they, they they sound good when he writes about them, and especially when a white audience reads it. I bet it sounds really nice, but mm-hmm. those people they don't mess with him because uh, he equated the Garveyites with the uh, uh, with with fascism, called them black fascists. Right, uh, I think he belittles Malcolm X as well and some other mm-hmm. stuff. So, yeah, it's uh, it's an odd one. <laughs> but, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so. it,
0: is, it is. It is. I think just going to wrap it up now. If you have anything else that you want to include for these, these first couple of chapters that we were going on, if there's anything that sticks well, out to you. I,
2: I don't want to be seen as a hater. I do think the idea of Roots and Roots that he has, I mean, I think Daniel uses it as a title that was very helpful because the fact of hybridity is a fact and the fact of diaspora is a fact, the fact of that diversity, like the, the factuality of the facts that they're talking, the factness of it, I actually mm-hmm. agree with it from an individual perspective, you know, with a personal history of movement and migration uh, you know, multi-generation and all that. Yeah. So a lot of the stuff he talks about, diaspora, how it works and what uh, the, the, the logic... Of why they would want to think, they they do rethink po- politics, society, and culture through the prism of diaspora. Makes sense, to, you know logically speaking. Once you reach a certain age and you have seen several cycles, I've always said, uh, you know, my personal life. The immigrant who thinks he he can return to his roots finds out that his you know his journey back is just another it's just that it's another route r-o-u-t-e um
0: that was like my experience in 1999 i went back to a place that was told to be a certain way i went there (laughs) obviously when you you, went back to toronto or no direction you know yeah but you didn't go back
2: that was your first journey right
0: well no first journey but back in a sense that hey this is where you're from you need to go back you know my parents tell me but for
2: you that was the first journey that's what i mean Mm-hmm. Your first root is is not a return to your roots. It's your first root.
0: Well, that that was the complication, right? I was right. thinking that this is a a return to my roots, and so <laughs> that's where it's like, no, it's actually not. This is I'm an alien here. This is this is you know what I'm saying. My thoughts, my ideas, are totally alien. And go back to Toronto, and that was my journey back to my roots. That's what I realized.
2: Right, right, yeah, and, but, but yeah. then by the time you get back there Toronto has probably changed a little bit Not you know, yeah. materially, necessarily But now you mm-hmm. see Toronto With a different set of eyes, right? So, 100%. like for example My mother's generation, they left So that was their first Route, their first step out mm-hmm. And when they returned after independence Back to their, what they thought was Their roots, what they actually arrived at Was a country they barely Recognized Right. you know people spoke differently time you know time and space changes and all you had to hold on to was memories that you constantly reconstruct from from your from your time there as a as a younger person and what's happening now is i think this is where i would like to ask daniel why the quotation marks beyond the fact that he believes all immigrants are british mm-hmm. and it's the notion of britishness that has to expand not the mm-hmm. it's not on the individual to expand themselves in order mm-hmm. to fit into pre-described idea of Britishness, right? I would like to ask him that because it is useful to think about what the difference is between a first-time immigrant and what the first-time immigrant can tell their second-generation child about yeah. about these things. You know, because you're a step ahead. It's not it's not going to be what you think. I, I feel for me, it was the other way around. I could have told my 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 mother that the second time around, she goes back. It's not really a going back. It's more like a going forward. You know, you're constantly going forward.
0: Right. Yes, that is the movement. I think it was Gilroy. Oh, might be getting this wrong. It might be Peter Hudson. And I think it was Gilroy. He he, he, he had that line that was, would always stick with me. And I found it like to be really, really, really informative. We're more routed than rooted. We're more routed oh, okay. than rooted. And that makes me understand Mike's that experience I had a bit more. Just that line by itself, and we can understand ourselves as part of the, the circulation of people, ideas, products, yeah. right? That 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 globalization drive, and we are in those circuits of movement.
2: Yeah, I mean that's the that's the entire basis I think of the Black Atlantic. There is no. Right. So all these com- you know, diaspora wars and arguments about ownership of culture, which is all besides the point. But but to bring it back to Canada, just to finish on <laughs> on this point, yeah. he talks about Canadians who would simultaneously want to be seen as separate from America, but are also constantly seek approval from America or attention from America, right? Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that um, to think culture through this multi circuitous and dynamic sense uh is what is um is why i i guess certain ca- canadian academic um group has taken to it like you know it's a,
0: the black atlantic idea
2: yeah you know it allows the black canadian to express themselves in a in a way that they couldn't before yeah. because they had to constantly borrow from i guess american ideas of nationalism or national identity or or black identity and they were too far removed from uh, you know, good old the good old monarchy here
0: Right, right, right <laughs> kind of in the middle in that liminal space yeah, I think that's absolutely on the ball, right it's it's feeling provincial being in a place that's to the north of a global superpower the number one global superpower in the world after World, world War II so being beside this monolith to the south of us trying to get certain types of historical injustices against black people in Canada recognized, whereas the Canadian media and Canadian academic institutions keep reinforcing this idea that black people are just what, what, what consists of them is just recent arrivals and immigrants. And we know that's a lie. Right. And we know that's a lie because we have like like if you if you know Toronto, like right at the center of, of, of the city is a, a station called uh, Dundas Station and Dundas was a man I believe was a slave owner and so they're going to be changing that name up soon right so that tells you how close it is at, right at the center of the financial district right there is the name of a, a, a slaveholder so that that's that kind of disavowed by the Canadian public uh, the white Canadian public and that admission uh, to that actual fact of hey this man was a slave owner kind of proves the point that black academics have been trying to make for a while and the the idea of the black Atlantic enables them to get past that provinciality and that, that sense of being second fiddle to the Americans and the African American intellectuals and it enables them to have I think it was the best thing that they had so to, to launch an analysis and a critique of you know Canadian multiculturalism Canadian niceties and the, the the patronizing um, nature of the Canadian media and, and the different academic institutions. I think that, yeah, Daniel McNeil understands Canada and Black Canada uh, better than most Black Canadians. <laughs> and So I, 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 th- I think it was terrific and wonderful, that analysis.
2: Well, it's only getting started, so. Mm-hmm. I, I think in Chapter 4, Gilroy responds to a lot of the shit i just do Adam? so <laughs> right,
0: say, right 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 That's, let's see yeah,
2: i yeah. mean I, I i obviously he's already done that it's just in this book uh, the way mcneil mm-hmm. has uh daniel has um by the way have you noticed you call armand white armand i call daniel daniel oh. you call <laughs> daniel mcneil and you call gilroy gilroy and when i want to belittle paul gilroy i call him paul <laughs>
0: <laughs> so we got to get this right so uh... You know, well, I, I, I don't
2: know. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just joking, man. It's,
0: just, uh, it's not important. <laughs> so how does Daniel want to be? Daniel McNeil want to be re- referred to? Well, does, I would know. We'd have should, to ask him. Yeah, we got. Is it is it prof- Professor McNeil? Professor Daniel McNeil? Professor Paul Gilroy? You know, I want to be respectful.
2: Yeah, that's the that's the Black Mediterranean in you. <laughs> you, you, you your new diaspora, you know?
0: Exactly. You, you, I come with the...
2: You're coming and 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 complicating. The complication,
0: <laughs> exactly. More complex. Coming with my my Havisher sensibilities and uh, the humility of, you know, <laughs> the the Havisher man.
2: Yeah, but, but yeah, uh, this was nice, and looking forward to go to Detroit next, and uh, looking to the guy we both probably spend more time talking about. We could. There's more to talk about. For sure. I if I, if, I think if it wasn't for Daniel, I'd be the considered the prime Armand whitest <laughs> <laughs> but i just kind of fell out of it the, over the last i mean uh, since five six years ago i kind of it's like oh man come on now armand i i can't i can't i can't be seen around you anymore
0: <laughs> you know yeah those that resistance <laughs> years book was just so
2: well that's 84 to 94 so that's, yeah
0: that's you know good old marx's days <laughs> <laughs> that that stuff Viva i still Revolution. read all this I still read most of his reviews, most of his, his writing. He has he has a lot of insight still, so you can disagree with somebody and, and still still read them.
2: I would say his best years were the uh, what they call it, the New York Press days from the first decade of this century. So in oh, my right. in my categorization, the Bush years. That's the best right. stuff I've read. Because that's, uh, that's really reading against the grain. Or writing against mm-hmm. the grain in this
0: case. Yeah, like his article on Jay-Z and, and Diddy uh, regenerating or degenerating hip-hop for me was just perfect. The way he read Jay-Z's 99 Problems video and Diddy's P. Diddy's um, Raisin in the Sun Broadway play. I thought I thought that was marvelous the way he brought those two things together and talked about the direction hip-hop could go and to really do an analysis on its current day renderings and the kind of the, the the direction it was going. He, he, he offered an awesome analysis there.
2: Yeah. Um, that's like I say, looking forward to Detroit techno soul and uh,
0: libertarianism. Let's go. Yeah. Motown. Here we come. All right. So with that, (laughs) what a thank you for giving us a listen, um, make sure to, to share, like and subscribe to this and shoot us an email at nogpspodcast.gmail.com. Hope we did. Mr. Daniel McNeil, Justice. And we're going to keep going at it. So peace and harmony to you all. Peace and harmony, Mez.
2: Peace and harmony.